0: Hello, welcome to Blong's podcast series, Keeping Pace with Therapy, looking at intersectional innovations in psychotherapy. As various mental health experts as well as organizations try to understand the relationship between social identities and mental well being of the individual, various psychological intervention strategies are being introduced, or rather reintroduced, keeping in mind the need to see the therapy room as a space not devoid of social context. In this podcast series, we try to look at some of the innovations in psychotherapy that are making mental health sector and therapy approaches more inclusive and sensitive to the sociocultural realities of people. This series is hosted by Saranj Bisht and Anugraha Raman. Tune in to know more. Psychodynamic therapy or psychoanalytic therapy is one of the oldest instruments of change that has contributed to a greater understanding of a person's conflicts by stressing the unconscious processes. In this episode titled Expanding the Scope of Psychodynamic Psychotherapy, we speak with Zehra Mehdi, a professional trained in psychoanalytic therapy about the various old and new psychodynamic techniques that have contributed to a much more inclusive couch. Zehra Mehdi is a doctoral candidate at the Department of Religion, Columbia University working at the intersection of religion, politics, and psychoanalysis. Her doctoral dissertation studies how Muslim, as persecuted religious minorities in India, draw upon religion to perform psychic work of verbalizing trauma, mourning loss, as well as staging political protest. She is also a practicing psychoanalytic psychotherapist from India since 2010 with a special interest in working with religious, caste, and sexual minorities. Hi Zera, welcome to the podcast. Hi. You have been trained in psychoanalytic psychotherapy and at the same time, you're working at the Department of Religion, Columbia University. How did you come in contact with psychoanalysis to begin with? And how did your personal life inform your decision to become a psychoanalytic psychotherapist?
1: Thank you so much for inviting me. Saranj, how did I come in contact with psychoanalysis? I think I, um, I mean, there was a formal way in which I came in contact with psychoanalysis was when I was doing psychology after high school in 11th Standard, and that's when within the psychology syllabus. That was the first time I read Freud and a bit of his theories. And a lot of people found it very difficult to understand the unconscious and defense mechanisms. But for me, it just felt like, oh, I know what he's talking about. And in that sense, that is the formal introduction to psychoanalysis. But I always feel that informally, I was introduced to psychoanalysis because I started reading poetry very early on in my life. I think because I was interested and attuned to listen and read in a certain ways about certain things, uh, emotions and feelings and complicated versions of life. So when psychoanalysis then later came on in my life as a teenager, it did not feel weird. It felt right. It felt like I was already primed for it in some way. My personal life informed me to become a therapist. I actually didn't want to become a therapist. I wanted to become a writer. But I realized that all therapists at some level also are trying to find answers for themselves, trying to find out answers and trying to understand something about lives of those around us. Siblings, parents, other family members, being a Muslim also played an important part in wanting to be a therapist and to understand the intersections of political and personal. So I think I would say a lot of this personal life combinations is why I or how I ended up becoming a psychoanalytical
0: psychotherapist. Thank you for sharing that, Sarah. You've also done research on religious nationalism, Muslim identity, the politics of gender, and political subjectivity in North India. Can you tell us a little bit about your research, and is it possible for you to share some crucial findings that came out of your studies?
1: I'm actually glad that you asked this particular question, because a lot of people are confused about what am I doing a PhD in, because of the fact that I'm practicing Since a while now, they think I'm doing it from a psychology department and I'm not. I'm doing it from a religion department at Columbia. I'm interested in basically the intersections of, as I said earlier, personal and the political. And in this particular instance, also interested in religious minorities and religion per se. So I've just been very interested in how people who shape themselves as religious subjects, who identify themselves as Muslims particularly because that's one community that I'm interested in how do they figure out a uh, loss how do they figure out this burgeoning nationalism in india how do they make sense of what's happening around us we can sit here and we can sort of theorize that you know here and like all is this sort of happening but what is it the people thinking about and what are their concerns but at the same time i did not want to make it a survey so my particular work coming back to my dissertation is looking is sort of focuses on Muslims in UP, particularly old Lucknow, which is basically an old Muslim majority area. And I'm trying to understand how does state-persecuted minorities use religion, find religion in their lives under persecution? And how do they fashion themselves? How do they reconcile? And what is that dialogue between being Indian and being Muslim? And findings in the sense, what I've done in this, that I've interviewed a lot of people, some interviews I've kept for my thesis, the rest are going to come out for the book whenever it does. And in these interviews, I'm trying to understand the complex ways in which people are trying to talk about their hurt, their trauma, their struggles. And when I say talk, and there is where psychoanalysis particularly comes in, I don't mean speech i don't mean how do they talk what are the words they use but really what are the ways in which they talk what is it that they say what is it that they don't say what is it that they just don't want to talk about at all so the absences and the gaps is what i'm interested in and what they have made me realize is that for the persecuted minorities in the country religion is really something like a vocabulary which helps them express what they are going through It gives them a framework to mourn and it also helps them translate personal losses into political action. So there is a psychic work of uh, religion at play and that's really what my work is about. And it is in fact, that is what it is called. It's called the psychic work of religion.
0: Yeah, Thank you for describing it very briefly. And I'm sure there are multiple people who might be interested Mm -hmm. to know more. And of course, like in case if they want, they can just check out your research work online, I'm guessing.
1: No, no, of course, of course. Not all of it is out because some of it I'm just sort of presenting in like conferences before my thesis is out. I also don't want to publish a lot before my actual monograph is out, although I do write a bit here and there. But of course, they are free to mail me and ask me stuff if they want. And if they have any questions about it, I'm happy to respond.
0: Great. As a starting point, Zahra, for those who don't know much about psychoanalytic psychotherapy, can you explain what it is and what sets it apart from other forms of therapy, specifically how you view and interpret it?
1: Yes, absolutely. It's important to always start basic, sort of go back to what it is that we do. So at a very, very simple language, because we'll start from the popular Sort of realm, psychodynamic psychoanalysis, and I will also explain like the difference between the two, is the most popular, is the most cinematically displayed, cinematically performed analytical therapeutic work you would have seen, where there's a big couch and the patient is on the couch and the analyst doesn't talk much, analyst sits at the back, and then you talk about basically whatever comes in your mind. Now, of course, it is a caricatured version which is shown in most of the movies, if not all. Now, that's the visual of it. Now, what we are doing in that is psychoanalytical therapy basically says that there are things in your mind which are difficult to put into language. And just because you don't say it doesn't mean they don't exist. Now, this is where it becomes different from, let's say, the behavioral therapy, which entirely rests on what is seen is there, what is, what is not seen, it's not there. So they work on behavior. An extension of that becomes CBT, which is an extremely popular therapy across the world these days, these days being for the last 20, 25 years, where they focus on thought and action. Psychoanalysis coming back is saying, yes, there is thought and yes, there is action, but then there is also the unconscious. There are many things that will not come in action, but they exist. And those are the things that have been socially, civilizationally rendered shameful difficult or taboo, to be precise as a term where you don't talk about sex you don't talk about anger you don't talk about revenge you don't talk about hate these are bad things you don't talk about them you must not acknowledge them you must not have them so instead of banishing them away and saying this is wrong and you should not have it psychodynamic therapy psychoanalytical therapy engages actually entirely and only with that To begin with, of course, it is not to say that we don't understand or engage with behavior, but it's our sense that the behaviors are mitigated by something called as desire and desire is irrational. So most of other therapies focus on weeding away the irrational part of it, that this is irrational, hence don't do it. Psychoanalytical work is going to say, no, just because it's irrational doesn't mean people are not going to do it. You have to work in the realm of the irrational. So I think that becomes important as a premise of what we do. Also, of course, the model of the mind of Freud is important, where he talks about the conscious, unconscious parts of your mind, or let's say, inner world, where you see that there are some things that which are conscious and are available to you at any given moment of time. And there are other parts that are not available to you, to what I said, hate, rage, revenge, all of that, quote-unquote bad things. and. The work of analytical therapy is to help you not be caught in the dynamic of quote unquote the badness of all these terrible feelings. To also accept, you know, these days therapy has also become a fad now, it's become fashion and these catchwords, you must accept yourself. It's okay. I don't think people really understand what they mean when they say this because it's extremely difficult. You know, it's extremely difficult to admit to oneself, for example, that. I'm a vengeful person. It's not a good part of me and I want to work on it. So when you say that, work on it is also becoming one of those catchwords. So when we have patients coming to us and they want to work on, let's say, rage, who want to work on how when they are stressed, all they want to do is have sex with like multiple partners. The point is not to judge them as, oh, that is an immoral thing to do. But instead to really ask a more difficult and a more sensitive question, what is happening? What are you searching for? What are you getting away from, or what are you feeling when you are sleeping with, for example, multiple partners? What is happening inside you, or what is it giving you? What is it letting you escape? So it's a slow therapy. whether that's one of the other quote-unquote problems with it. It's a process work. It takes incredible amount of time. But you also have these days short-term psychodynamic work that it's like the length in that sense is not a precursor. It is also an extremely painful process. You don't. As I tell a lot of my young students in like talks, you don't come out of psychodynamic therapy feeling thrilled. In fact, it's quite contrary because in sessions that are very good, which means they are extremely painful, you have realized something very tragic and difficult about your life or yourself or about those around you. And it's been great, but it's very painful. So our job as psychodynamic therapists is not to make People happy is to reveal or explore with them more than reveal in that sense the complexity the paradox the ambivalence of life and that is also why it takes so much time because it's not something i can fix the other thing about fixing is oh we must accept but how do you accept what is accepting do to you i think these processes are tiring and they take a lot of time and a lot of people frankly complain about it that you know it's so long and it's expensive and it's time consuming which I agree it is but you can work around it but it's not something you can finish off in 10 sessions certainly that's not what it is and it's not going to do its job as simple as that I don't know if I've answered it properly it's just also very very difficult important question
0: though. yeah yeah I think it's difficult to concisely explain what yeah. it is in just a few minutes but perhaps those who are starting to know about psychoanalytic psychotherapy will do their homework perhaps later after listening to this.
1: I really hope so I it's also difficult to describe it a because of two reasons the basic psychoanalytical texts are dense and the textbook psychoanalytical texts are boring mm. so I find myself torn between psychoanalysis, like the denser version and the boring version. I also don't want to dilute it and make it easy and be like, oh, you know, I'm going to catch it up in like one PPT slide in my head and show it. But if I'm teaching and I have taught in schools and when I'm teaching them Freud, one of the things that I do say, and just to sort of make a difference and it makes it easier for people who are just starting out, that what really is the difference? Because there are really a lot of therapies out there that. All other models of therapy, like for example, CBT, is going to be interested in, let's say you have a, think of it in like physical terms, because psyche is sometimes difficult to talk about in like abstraction. Think that you've got an infection and it has, you know, you have a skin infection and your skin is sort of there and there's a rash. So you will have an ointment, which is going to make sure that the rash doesn't spread. It's a really important ointment. It is going to make sure your skin is healthy. That's CBT. It's important. I'm not saying it is not important. It will make sure it doesn't spread and you can work with your hand. I'm not entirely sure if it will address the infection. For the infection, you will have to have an antibiotic. Now, the antibiotic, as you all know, has a course, right? It has a course. It has five pills that you have to take for five days. After three days, 90% of the people experience that they don't really need it. But it's a course. You have to do it. I think for me psychoanalysis is like that antibiotic course which is really is going to address the infection but it's going to take time it's not going to be fine in like a couple of hours like that ointment this is a very very high school version of psychoanalysis
0: yeah yeah thanks for giving that imagery to us Zara. since the early 19th century many theorists have contributed to the development of psychoanalysis. There's also a steady stream of arguments against modifying psychoanalytic techniques to reflect local realities. What is the scope for inclusion and cultural sensitivity in psychoanalytic practice world over and specifically in India? How do you use it to work with individuals from marginalized groups in case? You can also give examples from your personal work.
1: Of course, of course. I agree that there is a steady stream of arguments against modifying psychoanalytical techniques, but at the same time, there is also a very strong stream of arguments of, but like, again, and I, I know this a little more because I've been in New York for a while, of analysts of color, analysts of religious observations to actually resist that completely. And it's not just only to reflect local realities, but to say that how that testifies to the universality in some level of psychoanalysis that what freud was talking we had peers talking about it we had writers talking about it we have practices which sort of carry it and to be able to make that link becomes sort of that you know for example i in my phd work i have had women talking to me who are like 75 who've only been to the madarsa can't speak english don't even speak hindi speak abadi say things that are entirely and completely analytic. Psychoanalysis has given us a vocabulary to understand the world, like narcissism, regression, repression. These are all words of psychoanalysis through which we now understand the world. So I think to say that, okay, you know, can it reflect local realities is to say that there's something called local and there's something called psychoanalytic. And these are very separate. Yes, you're absolutely right to say that it's not unfounded, that... There is a genesis to your question. It has come from somewhere. There is a big resistance. Like again, this is not pure psychoanalysis. It's not really psychoanalytic. I find that not just earlier to find that very unhelpful, now is to find it very boring. And when I say boring, because it reflects a very mainstream, stereotypical, majoritarian worldview anywhere in the world, which is just so afraid to encounter difference that it will completely banish and tighten its sort of gatekeepings. That, you know, this will enter and this is not sort of worthy of inter- of sort of being entertained. At the same time, I also very, very, very of anything in the name of therapy. No, therapy has, a, it's a way it's done. It has its limits. It has its some things that are like going for it. And that happens particularly when one is talking about politics and marginalities and therapy. Because what we have managed to have so far in terms of conversations is access, which is like, again, extremely important. But there is a second side of the story, which I'm interested as a practitioner, that what happens after access? Now, let's see, I have a Kashmiri patient coming to me and somehow they've managed to either access me, be afford me, and then they are there in therapy. Now, what do I do? My job as an analyst is not to be like, Yeah, there is persecution. Yes, there is colonialism. I need to be able to translate into the language of therapy rather than saying, yes, yes, it's very sad that this is happening to you. We are not there yet. We are still talking about the access. So either you can be an activist or you can be a therapist. Being a therapist, activist, it happens. It's a little difficult. But you still have to engage with what it means for them internally without constantly agreeing with them. It's a tricky thing. You don't want to gaslight them because really that's just wrong. But you really have to also interrogate that why is this patient coming to you? What does it mean? And when I say marginalized groups, I've also currently, for a long time now, I also see, let's see, women or sexual minorities, which are very right wing. So for us, it becomes, and it's also to working with our own political beliefs and therapy And sometimes it really becomes difficult. So the question of inclusion and exclusion is a difficult one. It requires a little more than just let's have an access to it. But what will you do after that access becomes important? And there is a lot of scope for inclusion and cultural sensitivity, but that's not going to happen. Like, for example, I read a lot of colored analysts. I watch a lot of cinema. I frankly read a lot of Black Dalit poetry. And it's not that is how I'm going to converse with my patient. But it really helps me understand the world I did not grow up in. It helps me understand a language. And of course, amidst all of this, you have to have personal work. I've been in analysis for over a decade, three times a week. I've been in supervision for about eight years now. So I think that also helps because it's not that you can read and you can understand, you know. There will be some resistance to that internally also. So you have to work with that. I think in India, I mean, for me, the religion, caste and sexual minorities is something we haven't really. You know, we talk about this has become a new thing. Are you a queer affirmative therapist or not? And I'm also just really interested in language because I'm like, what does it even mean? Queer affirmative therapist? Because I've seen a lot of people who call themselves queer affirmative therapists and it's just a really Mm -hmm. bad therapist because they don't know how to walk with the patient's internal struggle. The point is not to assure them that it's okay to be queer, which of course it is. But what does it really mean for them to be that? And what is it doing to them? And why are they coming to you for that? I think you have to be really skilled and really confident also without getting caught in the morality of it. I mean, being a therapist doesn't make you a good person. That's not the job. The job is to understand something far more complicated and complex. And I think because I draw strands from poetry, cinema, literature, culture, songs, I think, all of that, in the absence of, of course, good, solid writing from India, because majority of my patients are in India or are, are Indians so far. That is how I'm able to use a lot of. like I have a trans patient, and sometimes it becomes really difficult for both of us to talk about what they are experiencing. And we talk about. Sometimes a certain movie that they watch and that becomes the mode of conversation. I think that's been incredibly useful as a language. And I feel that if you're sincere, if you're not bullshitting, if you're not trying to be smart, your patient knows. They really know. So you can ask them stuff that you may not know and they will tell you. You don't have to be afraid. I think you, we are afraid as therapists because we really try to impress the patient. Tell the patient we are like politically correct. They don't need all that crap. You just have to not be an ass.
0: That's all, basically. Yeah, thank you for being quite frank. With regard to the question of accessibility, psychoanalytic psychotherapy is often understood as an indulgence in diverse settings, mostly because of the high fees and long treatment plans. How have psychoanalysts responded to the concerns of those who cannot afford therapy?
1: You know, psychoanalysis, and I'll respond first in India and then outside India. Psychoanalysis are seen as people who take a lot of money and are very elite. Yeah, actually, elite is the appropriate word. And it's actually absolutely right. It is quite crazy, the amount of money people charge. Now, of course, I can justify it by saying, but you know, we spend 10 years, 12 years in analysis, three times a week, paying somebody who is not charging us less. We go for supervision at least twice in a week. So the amount of money we spend on just the training it is exorbitant. So it makes sense for us to charge what we charge. Having said that, I also feel that it's still ridiculous. I come from Delhi and like, UP, but let's see, pay basically Delhi. If I'm going to charge 4,000 rupees, I've automatically assured a certain population is not going to come to me. Right? Who's going to pay 4,000 for a session? Now, it doesn't matter how good, great, understanding, fantastic I am. For example, what I charge my american clients it's very different from what i charge in india what i have seen however in the last and frankly i did not quite see this before that but the new crop of analytical therapists that have been coming out are really quite fantastic because they are either balancing it out means they have a clientele that pays their full fee whatever it is 2500 3000 35 whatever who can pay and that allows them to open two three four low fee slots or free slots to then see people from the marginalized group. And I think that's a good balance. This is also a new group of young analysts, young analytical therapists who are also working a lot. They are also reading a lot. They are more politically aware. There are these new platforms like, like Belong and like Unbottle Emotions, etc., that are having these conversations. So there is a far, far greater awareness and dialogue that it was when we were training. Sometimes long treatment plans work Sometimes long treatment plans don't work. You can't have a patient who can't afford, has a precarious home situation. To commit to twice-a-work therapy for like five years, that's not going to happen. You adapt, you do phone sessions, you do WhatsApp sessions. And all of this has also happened in like COVID, where you kind of realize that, oh my god. I've had patients with whom I've done short-term work for like six months, and then they've come back after four years and said, now we are ready. Financially internally for long-term work. I know so many psychoanalytical therapists who are charging zero, nil. I used to have, I've closed my slots for a year, but I used to see patients for free and particularly margins. Dalits, Muslims, women, queer populations, Christians, poor. And I know, I currently know at least three to four therapists of minority who charge absolutely nothing to their patients like 50 bucks 30 bucks some of them are free along with that there will always be people who will charge like four grand 3500 that we can't do anything about but there's a far greater awareness and I think earlier until unless you charge so much until and unless they commit to like twice a week until unless xyz happens you are not going to be able to do analytical work oh analytical work is so sophisticated That until and unless that the patient is psychologically minded, they will not understand metaphors. They will not understand obtuse language. In my personal work with patients for the last 12 years, I have never seen that. I don't think... Some people have may not have been ready to do analysis. That is fine. But I haven't met anyone who, in India particularly, who doesn't engage with language but wants to do therapy. That has not happened. I think we are so set particularly psychoanalysts are so set in language and in only one kind of language like one of my biggest aims in the community is that why do we talk in english in therapy because none of my patients talk in english that's not how they talk to themselves that's not how they think so can we first of all talking in english and start doing therapy in hindi in urdu in like bangla marathi Whatever, whatever language, so that we are more closer to the patient, so that we understand their world better. And I know a lot of people who do that. We have a group, some of us, and we try to also adjust patients who can't pay. I do a lot of loans business that I've had young students who cannot pay me. And then I take them on for on a loan, which means whenever they will get a job, they can pay me. And sometimes it has been five years that they have done therapy with me for two years, have gone back, found a job and paid me. This is all on a basis. If they don't pay me, I can't do anything about it. But that's how you also, in my imagination, build a community.
0: Thank you for sharing your opinion, Zara. I think very crucial points that you've made. At a time when culturally sensitive psychotherapeutic tools and techniques are being developed to cater to the changing times... How can psychoanalysis stay relevant, especially in India?
1: I think for psychoanalysis to stay relevant in India, it will have to engage with politics. It will have to engage with political realities. that It has skirted very conveniently up to now. Very conveniently. And it has skirted not now, but it has skirted historically. So psychoanalysis first came in Calcutta. Came as in that was where it was sort of developed, burgeoned and all of that. So the Indian Psychoanalytical Association in Calcutta has a journal. And it's the oldest, it's the first non-white psychoanalytical association in the world to establish in Calcutta in the 1920s. Now, at that time, in the late 1920s, it started a journal called Samiksha. Now, Samiksha had volumes coming up and they were accessible and they were in English. And some of them were just absolutely had fantastic clinical work, what was happening. So it's very interesting for young students to go back and see. That 1930s, what were the complaints patients were sort of coming in with? How were they treated psychoanalytically? What you will find when you go there is that in the year of the 1940s to 1948, or 45 to like 48, which we all know historically is a tumultuous time in the country, the country is being partitioned. There are nuclear riots happening in, in Bengal. None of them are mentioned in those journals. It's interesting that when a Muslim patient comes, it is the, the notes say, Mohammedan. You don't have that in any other patient's notes, don't say Hindu or Christian. But when a Muslim comes or when a Parsi comes, you say Muslim. But the analysis has nowhere the violence. It has nowhere Islam. So it has very conveniently skirted. Even when COVID happened, right before COVID, we had huge countrywide anti ca protests in which people were arrested, people were jailed. There was constant police brutality. We started a group, me and a bunch of others, started a service of free mental health to a lot of young students. And we had an email and people would actually write to us. And since then, that is also when a lot of practices went up because we realized, oh my God, there is a need to talk about politics. Urgent, pressing need. There was not a peep from IPA. However, when COVID happened, There was a big statement from IPA, how it is offering free analytical work. So it becomes very interesting that what will be recognized as trauma and not recognized as trauma. So COVID is trauma, but police brutality is not trauma. And I think till the time we are very conveniently, Saigonath is not engaging in all of that. It's just going to fail. It's just going to be left redundant. It's not going to burgeon at all. And when I say political, I don't only mean political, like contemporary politics, but just gender. If somebody asked me, and in fact, somebody did ask me some time ago, is there a book that we can read on Dalit experience, Dalit self and psychoanalysis? And there's none, not a single one. I can't point to a book and say that about Muslims either, that there is nothing, there's no psychoanalytical inquiry about Muslim experience. So... What is this India that we keep talking about, which keeps leaving these marginalities out? Who is the Indian then? I think till the time psychoanalysis in India is too busy working against the West, it will go on sort of solidifying these borders and will then die. It'll just die. It's quite simple. And I think this is one of the reasons it is not as popular as it used to be at one point of time. In some ways it is because most people come to us to do deep work to do long-term work, to know that this is going to take time. I've had people who've been with me for six years, very frustrated and very caught, but also very aware that they don't want to go to anyone else. And that's got nothing to do with me. That's really got to do with the process, that they know this will take time. But you're not going to be able to work and engage with people's realities if you keep on skirting political fractions. It's just not going to happen. So, yeah.
0: That's very true. And hoping that the contemporary times actually force some gates to open uh, sooner or later or
1: or find new gates and make new ones yeah
0: yeah but i think like that also puts pressure on say marginalized communities who have to look for either some relatable literature or create literature themselves because there exists none so yeah let's see what happens eventually
1: i actually agree with your that sometimes it will shift. For example, I'm trying to write something on psychoanalysis and the Muslim experience in India. Sometimes it feels like a burden. Sometimes it feels like something I want to do because I know no one else can do it. Like no one else in the non-Muslim community is going to do it. So I think people should do it in their own time. Without like It's not our job. Our job, when I say our, I mean the minority, to make ourselves understandable to the majority. That's not the job I think we are willing to do. We want to put our stories out because we want to put our stories out. I have had three people from the Dalit community come to me after reading Yashik Haddad's book, only after reading that. So I think to put our stories out, to find ways to say it, is the only way to get it. We can do that on our own pace. We don't have to do it urgently. It takes time and we should give ourselves that time. So yeah.
0: Yeah, definitely. Thank you.
1: I'm not sure if I answered like on point, but ballpark, I guess
0: no no definitely that answer is the question of course like there are different ways to reach any particular question but i really love to hear your opinions and yeah hoping to engage further
1: absolutely thank you so much for like calling me and thinking of me and having this up i don't think people like to talk about psychoanalysis anyways particularly in public platforms so i must first of all congratulate you for being brave to do that and thank you again for thinking of me and again for all the patience that it takes to like schedule things with me because of the time difference.
0: No, you no, just... definitely. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you. You can also listen to this podcast and many more conversations on intersectional inclusion by downloading Plong's app, Another. Spelled U-N-O-T-H-E-R. Available on Apple and Google App Stores. To connect with intersectional experts for guest lectures or consultations, check out Belong Circle, a platform that makes it easy for a range of organizations and individuals to integrate intersectionality in their work. Thank you for listening and stay tuned to listen to more such episodes on intersectional inclusion.